0: The text for this morning's sermon is 1 Samuel 4, if you want to turn there. 1 Samuel 4, 1 through 22. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, "'Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies.' So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, "'What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean?' And when they lean or when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A god has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to Hebrew to the Hebrews, as they have been to you be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel thirty thousand foot soldiers, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died and was ninety eight years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man Eli and the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle, I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth, and when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her.
1: Uh, Father, as we come before Your Word and we're going to consider the events that took place in Israel, God, I pray that we would learn the lessons that Israel needed to learn. Father, I pray that we would know that God's Word is sufficient for our lives, that even this account of Israel's history can change us, make us more like Christ. And so, God, I pray that uh, You would do that, that we would be fed by Your Word, that we would worship You as Lord. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this text, we have a story. We have an account of Israel's seeking salvation from the Philistines. And we recognize, if you look at the text carefully, that they're not seeking so much God for their help, but they're seeking the ark of the covenant of the Lord for their hope. They're seeking a religious sign that's to point them to the real God for their hope. And you might be sitting here saying, I don't know if I ever do that. Or, you know, we don't live in a culture that really, as Baptists, you might think, where we do this. But I hope today you realize that we're all capable of doing the very same thing that they did in Israel. And to begin with, as a introduction to the sermon, I'm going to uh, play a, a three-and-a-half-minute video of uh, Mark and Parker's ministry to the Songhai. And as you've heard in the past few months, this is an area that is 99% uh, Islamic and... Um, The interesting thing about this form of Islam, it's called folk Islam. They're an animistic culture that really their hope is in more like witchcraft. To have a a witch doctor give them formulas or wash ink into a cup and they drink it. Their hope is more magic than it is in even the God of Islam. And I want us to consider this, and then we're going to consider, do we do anything like this? We're going to look at this text. So go ahead and play the video, Dean. You have the testimony of Ibrahim and Bubakar, who lived lives of ritualistic uh, Islam and, and really folk Islam. And if they had a trouble in their life or a certain circumstance, they'd go to the witch doctor and he would write uh, some text from the Quran on a piece of paper. And then they would take water and pour it on the paper and it would go into the little cup and he would say, drink this and the gods or God or the spirits will help you with that particular situation. You can go into their stores and you can buy certain little uh, fluid, like two fluid ounces of what you need to drink to keep a curse off, off you if you feel like someone's put a curse on you. And we hear this, and if you watch the video, you would just think, this is silliness. Silliness that they would put hope in things like that. Well, it's not so silly that God's people would tend to do the same things. As we saw in this text, or we heard Scott read this text, we saw Israel in a difficult situation begin to do the very same thing that you and I tend to do. So what's going on in Israel? Remember, we're in this transition phase between the time of the judges, Samuel's this last judge who... Uh, in a sense, Samuel's the last judge. Eli's the last judge of the old regime. We're in this transition point where Israel's going to get its first king. And what we see at the end of chapter 3 is we see the Word of the Lord coming to Israel through Samuel, through a prophet that is raised up. And then right away in verse 1 of our text, we see that the Word of the Lord came to all of Israel through Samuel. So God shows up in Shiloh through Samuel. And then a difficult circumstance comes and Samuel's nowhere to be seen until chapter 7. So if you look at this text carefully, you see Israel has a prophet. They can learn from God His ways. And what's going on is The Philistines are moving in on Israel. Do we have the map, Dave? If you could uh, picture the green area is the territory that the Philistines are ruling. They have the five main cities, and those lines are how the ark of God traveled through their cities as we're going to see in the next three chapters, it doesn't go so good uh, for the Philistines when they capture the ark. Uh, that's what we're going to be getting into the next few weeks. Right up there where you see Aphek and Ebenezer, and you see that star, that is where this battle is taking place. So the Philistines are in the plain area along the coast on the Mediterranean Sea, and Israel is up in the mountain region, And the Philistines are moving in, consistently moving in on Israel, and they're just like a thorn in their side. The Philistines are these warriors, they're sea people that have settled in this area, and they're brutal, they're good fighters, and they're moving in on Shiloh, and Shiloh is where the Ark of the Covenant is present. If you remember, God gave the ark to Israel as a sign of His presence with the people. The Ten Commandments are in there in the ark. Uh, The staff that budded that Aaron had is in there. The manna they ate in the wilderness is in there. You're starting to see the temptation Israel might have. God used all these things mightily for Israel And they're put in this box that's overlaid with a gold lid, which is the mercy seat, and you have two cherubim, a lion-type human creature with wings that stretches over this, and God says, I'm above that. I'm between the the seraphim, above the mercy seat. That's where I will meet with you. And so that's in Shiloh and Israel starting to get nervous. The Philistines are moving in. And so the battle lines are drawn and Israel goes and they suffer a defeat. They lose 4,000 men. And right away they're asking the question, how, how, why has God defeated us? And then as, as if they say, aha. I got an idea. Now remember, at the end of the book of, all the way through the book of Judges, they're in the promise then, things should be going good, but what do we consistently see? People were doing what was right in their own eyes. This is the state of Israel. Whatever they think, they do. They lose 4,000 in battle, and they think, aha. God has used the ark before to destroy armies. As the ark went before them and it led Israel, they destroyed the people. And so they think, aha, here's what we're going to do. And who's in charge of the ark? And, and who's in charge of the tent of meeting? It's Eli and his sons. And what we know about Eli and his sons is they don't hold God as holy. Phineas and Hapni are stealing the meat that's to be burned to God as people bring it for sacrifice. The women that are serving in the temple, they're sleeping with. But the elders of Israel say, let's get the ark. Let's bring that in. Hophney and Phineas say, "Yeah, I will take the ark. you know we have the magic tool that 's going to win us our salvation, and so you see them bring the ark to the battle lines, and Israel sees the ark coming they 've heard stories about how God has worked in Israel, and their hope is in the ark, even though their hearts are totally making their own plans, they're not seeking the prophet that's in Israel to find out what they should do. They're doing it their own way. In a sense, they're testing God. Well, God's glory is at stake. We'll bring the ark. God's going to defend His glory even if our hearts are bad. They bring the ark in and all of Israel shouts. Can you imagine? So much so that the Philistines have never heard anything like this before. You know, I I remember playing football and the team right before the game on the other side gets in a huddle and starts... You you start thinking, man, they sound pretty tough over there. This is going on in the Philistine camp and all of a sudden, rumors. Oh, they brought their gods into, into the battle. Remember what the gods did in Egypt? See, they don't they didn't understand what was happening in Egypt. They just thought these gods came in and destroyed the Egyptian army. They didn't realize that there was a god that destroyed the Egyptian army. And they didn't realize that this God gave grace after grace and time after time for Egypt to repent, but they're afraid. We're going to become the slaves of the Hebrews if we don't man up. And so they rallied themselves for battle. And everything in the text says Israel's going to win. The ark that destroyed the Egyptians. The ark comes. All of Israel is rejoicing. If you had never read this passage in your Bible before, you think surely they figured it out. Surely things are going to go good. And then you just get this one-liner. And they were defeated. A great slaughter. 30,000 men dead. And the ark, the unthinkable, the ark of God, God made a covenant with Abraham. He's going to be with them through Israel. The whole world is going to be blessed. There's no way the ark can be captured, but the ark is captured and carried away. And so the first half of this text, you have two defeats. The first defeat and the second defeat. The main point of chapters 3-6 through is the Ark of the Covenant. Samuel goes into the background. The Ark of the Covenant is put forefront the next three chapters. And what we see in this chapter is this old regime, the prophecy of chapter 2 and chapter 3 that Eli and his sons were going to be destroyed for not holding up God as holy takes place. So you have two battles at the beginning and then you have receiving of bad news by two different people. And the first one is Eli, 98 years old. He's judged Israel for 40 years. He's the head priest at Shiloh. And you get the sense that he was kind of worried they were bringing the ark to battle. And he's sitting there and he's blind and he can, can't can see, but all of a sudden he hears these horrible cries in Israel. A horrible defeat has taken place. You can just picture him fearing the worst. He hears the screams and a messenger runs. His, tours are clo- his clothes are torn. He's got dirt on his face. This is what they did when they ever experienced great defeat. They would rub dirt on themselves. They would tear their clothes in anguish. What's the news, my son? What's going on? Tell me. And it's amazing. He says, Israel's been defeated. There's been a great slaughter. Your two sons are dead. That's bad news. But then, says, the ark has been captured. And it's then that Eli, a fat man, eating the sacrifices that were meant for God. Ninety-eight years old, tips off his seat, breaks his neck and dies, and prophecy fulfilled. His sons would be killed on the same day. Eli would be done. Old regime gone. But the ark takes center stage. You would think family members would take center stage. You'd think when he heard his sons were dead, that's when he would tip over and break his neck. And then you have Phineas's wife. One of the most gut wrenching, gut wrenching stories in the Bible. She's pregnant. She hears the bad news that her father-in-law is dead. Eli is dead. Her husband is dead. And the ark has been captured. And this news puts her into premature labor. And she gives birth and they try to help her, comfort her by saying, a son's been born to you. And she says, name him Ichabod. Because glory has departed from Israel. Name him Ichabod. And then two times, it's repeated. The glory is departed because the ark is gone. And her husband doesn't take center stage. The presence of God takes center stage. The symbol of the presence of God presence of God. It's as if Israel is destroyed. You've probably read on and know what happens in the coming chapters. When it seems like God's people are destroyed, even in the midst, God is cleaning out a wicked regime. He has already raised up a prophet in His Word, which they have not gone to Yet, but God's salvation is in progress. That's the story. What can we take from it? In light of this dramatic event in Israel's history, there are three, there are at least three practical ways we can be challenged by God's Word. There are three lessons we can learn from this passage of Scripture. I hope when you come to hear God's Word preached, you feel like you need it for the upcoming week, that there's actually power in it, and God can change you. Not just like, oh yeah, that was interesting and entertaining, but God's Word can change your life. So the first thing that... I think this text challenges us to do is to examine your hearts as you come before the Lord. Examine your hearts. Look at verse 3. And when the people of Ashdod rose... Are, I'm sorry, I'm in chapter 5. Verse 3. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Good question. That is a great question. Why has the Lord defeated us this day? What's the problem? Before the verse is even over, they're on to the human plan. There is no examining of their hearts. Israel didn't sit there and say maybe it's because we have wicked priests and maybe it's because we're not seeking God's will. Maybe it's because we're not seeking the prophet that the Lord has given us. Examine our hearts before we come before the presence of God. Who will God deal kindly with? The humble. Even as a Christian, in your pride, God's like a father. He disciplines His own children. If we come proud before Him, denying our sin, do we really think that it's going to go well for us? If your circumstances in life seem like, man, I know I'm kind of not living according to God's will, but for real, this is happening. Examine your heart. Are you humble before Him? Ponder the possible reasons for your defeats and search your heart for pride. How proud of the Israel elders not to consider longer about why the Lord has defeated them. How how do you humble yourself before God as sinners? Confess your sin and repent. You remember the story of Achan who was stealing and burying in the ground plunder from uh, the plundering of their enemies, what he was not supposed to do? Once he's found out, Joshua says to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to Him and tell me what you have done and do not hide it from me. You want to know how you give glory to God? You can't make yourself good enough, but you can call your sin what it is. Joshua said, give glory to God. And then what does Achan do? Truly I have sinned against the Lord God Israel. And this is what I did. Examine your hearts. When you seek the presence of God in your life, come to Him humbly. Praying the prayer of David. Search my heart. Also, do not find confidence in good religious practices. In good religious practices apart from a heart that seeks God's presence. Was it wrong for them to recognize that God has worked powerfully through the items that are in the ark and when the ark went before them, there was victory? What was the difference? Moses' hope was in the God that was above the mercy seat. And what we can do is we can so easily systematize good religious practices and have hearts that aren't really seeking God. You can do your quiet time in the morning. And you can read your Bible. And you can go to church on Wednesday. And you could go to church on Sunday. And then you could get to the end of the week and say, I had a horrible week. I did the system. Why didn't it work? Well, there's a way to do devotions where you're doing devotions to somehow magically get this relationship with God, and you forget that in your devotions that when you read your Bible, God is revealed there. The God who loves you and has died for you is there. The Bible is not a magical tool. The Bible is god's own words that reveals the God of the Bible. You see, we can pray and pray in a way that's like a magical prayer. We're not seeking the God who hears our prayers. And so we can turn very good practices into magical little formulas and we wonder why we don't spit out the other end mature in God. God cannot be manipulated. Our Lord cannot be manipulated. The Israelites thought if we bring the ark, He'll have to defend His name. And what do we learn? God is willing to let His name appear to be defeated in order to humble His people. That's what what we learn. He's willing to let the ark get captured. Now He retains His glory... Is the ark wreaks, is God wreaks havoc on every place the ark goes. God retains his glory, but he's willing to humble his people and let them have apparent defeat. God will humble us at sovereign grace if we get proud, if he loves us. He will humble us in the same way. We cannot put God to the test. One commentator said, the tragedy of this incident is that the people depended on political leaders, the elders, who too lightly sought help from a cultic object, the ark of God, and did not seek the Word of the Lord from His prophet. How often do we do this? You get in a pickle, You get in a difficult situation, what do you do? With all your strength and all your scheming, we tried to do it on our own. As though God's left us without the Holy Spirit. As though God left us apart from His Word. As though God left us without the church. God has given us all those things. Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And yet, how often do we have to hit rock bottom, try everything our own way before we cry out before God and say, you're my hope and you're my salvation. We can be so much like Israel was. We can look at other denominations. People will trust in their baptism as this magical thing that fixes them or confirmation or holy water that's going to heal or communion. And we as Baptists can, although we won't look to those things for salvation, we can take very good Christian practices which are meant to drive us into the presence of God and to His Word and turn those into magical little things. This wasn't rare. happened right away in the early church. You remember Simon who tried to buy the Holy Spirit from Peter? And Peter's response to him, he, Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. That's the key. Come in before God with a right heart. You can't buy God's favor. You can't. We can't manipulate God. You have the sons of Sceva in Acts 19. Paul's doing amazing miracles. God's doing them through Paul. Even the handkerchiefs and blankets that Paul touches, people are carrying those off and people are getting saved. The Jewish exorcists, the seven sons of Sceva, see this? They tried to call on the name of the Lord so they can have the same power. And... As they call on Jesus' name, they try to do the same thing the apostles are doing. They try to cast a demon out of the man. The man says, I know who Jesus is, and I know who Paul is, but who are you? In a sense, he's saying, You don't know God. You're trying to magically do something. And that's not how God works. The demons know that. And the demon jumps Through the man, the man jumps on them, tears their clothes off, and they run away naked and wounded. And then we read this. And also, many of those who where now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of them all. They counted the value of them and found them to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the Word of the Lord continued to increase. People saw this. They took all their magic books, all their practices, and said, that's dangerous to live that way. And so, if we're supposed to examine our hearts for pride and for hopes in false, magical, religious things, if we're going to seek His presence, then we must also mourn over our sins. We must also mourn over our sins for they bring separation from God. The amazing thing about verses 17 through 22 is this as the ark leaves, it represents the glory of God, the presence of God leading. Sin separates from God. For a non believer, it'll separate them from God for eternity in hell. Their sin will create a chasm that a holy God cannot be in their presence. What do we read in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2? Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that He cannot save, or His ear dull that it cannot hear, but your sins have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins has hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. For the non-believer, sins separate us from God. What about for us as believers? Our sins separate us from God, not in the sense that we're going to be destroyed in hell, separated from God, but we're separated from God as a father is to the son relationally. You can be a Christian, Just like a son remains a son of a father, and the son can so reject his father in so many ways that that relationship is just almost broken. There's distance. As Christians, that's how sin separates. No, we're not separated from God in the sense that we're going to pay for our sins for eternity but we're separated relationally from God. Sin separates. As Israel sinned, the ark leaves Israel, representation of God's judgment. But it's still like a father to the son because really he's going to work salvation for them. Does it matter once you're a Christian that you confess your sins before the Lord that you fight your sins if the presence of God matters to you? If having a close relationship with God, the reason why I got covenant eyes on my computer and on my iPad and on my phone, which is software, that accountability software, so... I don't look at pornography. It's not because just pornography is a bad sin that Christians do. It destroys a person's relational relationship with God. It hollows them out. Hollows men out. So that God seems so distant and so unreal and so much separation. So what we can learn from Israel is that separation from God is worse than separation even from your family members. Do you covet your relationship with God. A subpoint to this. Live as though the presence of God is better than anything else. Does that describe your life? Why do you fight sin, Sam? Because there's nothing better than the presence of God. There's nothing better than finding God in the Bible that I read. There's nothing better than praying to a God that hears my prayers and tells me I'll never leave you or forsake you. And coming to a God that says, come to me, for I care for you. There's nothing better than that. People die and they leave us. God will never leave us. Nothing is better than God. So fight your sin. Mourn over your sins for they bring separation from God. But know this. Know this. 1 Peter 3.18 Why did Christ die? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He's righteous. We're not. Why? That He might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. You want to know the greatest gift of your salvation? It's not that you get to see your family members in heaven. It's that you get to be in the presence of God face to face with your Creator, which is so glorious that we can't even fathom it. We cannot fathom what it's going to be like. Now we see through a glass dimly. Then we'll see face to face, Paul says. Then we will see Him. If we're to examine our hearts before we come into God's presence and we're supposed to mourn over our sins, then finally... We need to find hope in the reality that God is glorified in working His salvation through judgment. Let me say that again. If we're to examine ourselves and find sin and then mourn over that sin, then this has to be your hope or you're going to be utterly devastated. And your hope needs to be that God is glorified in working His salvation through judgment. You say, that sounds weird. You want to know what the whole Bible is about? How can God give grace to sinners and remain just? Because the predicament seems to be, if God gives grace, then He throws His holiness and His righteousness and His judgments to the ground and says, well, I'm gracious, but I don't take sin that serious. So, if He doesn't take sin serious, sin is falling short of the glory of God, then God takes His glory and He throws it to the ground. Well, the miracle, the best news in the world is that God sent His Son who is a God-man and who is the perfect God-man. And on that cross, Jesus took the sins of sinners on Himself. And God yelled out to the whole world, you want to know where my glory is? You want to know where my righteous judgment is? Right there! My son is bleeding on a cross dying at the hands of sinful man and you think that's bad. He's dying under my wrath. I am holy and sin matters. You want to know how much sin matters? My son is dying on a cross. And God's glory rises so high to the heavens and says God's glory is so important that even His Son, when sin is put on Him, He needs to be destroyed under the wrath of God. And the miracle is, is that as Jesus Christ pays for sinners, God now can retain His justice and give you grace if you'll cling to Him as your only hope. You see, God gets glory in salvation through judgment because He retains His righteousness in His judgments and He gives you grace and that's what your whole Bible is about. The Old Testament... Man's failure in seeking, working their own salvation. How can a man be saved? There seems to need to be a mediator. Christ came. Christ was that mediator. Let me just show you this quickly. Eli and his sons, the priests, die under the judgment of God. Jesus, the priest, dies under the judgment of God. The enemies of Israel have an apparent victory. Satan, as he entered Judas, turned Jesus over to the chief priests and the Gentiles, has apparent victory as Jesus Christ dies on the cross. The ark was captured by the Philistines, but it ended up being their own destruction as Satan entered Judas and had apparent victory. Satan, as he drove Christ to the cross, destroyed himself god's judgment on the wicked priesthood displayed god's glory in israel by demonstrating his holiness and mercy as he rescued his people from their enemies and in the same way god's judgment on christ displayed his glory by demonstrating his holiness and mercy as he rescued his people from their enemy and you want to know who the sinner's worst enemy is? It's not Satan. It's a holy God. It's a holy God. Man's worst enemy. Satan, if you read Revelation 21, he's already in the pit. Man is left naked standing before the holy God of the universe. Heaven and earth has fled away. Satan and his demons are in hell. The question is, will you run to the Savior? He is our only hope. So even in the midst of our humbling circumstances, God is working for our good. Isn't that what we see? God may be humbling us, but He loves us. And if we're His, He'll work it for His good. So humbly seek God's presence because He is a holy God and He is not a useful genie. Let's pray. Father, if there's anyone here that has not clung to Christ by faith, if there's anyone here who has never truly seen that Jesus is their only hope, Lord, I pray that that person would know that they cannot be good enough. They cannot do enough religious actions to be saved. What they need to do is call their sin what it is and find hopelessness in their sin and reach out with nothing but faith looking to Christ saying, He's my only hope. Lord, we know if anyone clings to Christ as their only hope by faith, You said You will surely save them. Father, thank You for that grace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.